Welcome to the Makom Israel Teachers Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners with Israel by discussing and exploring current events and relevant issues. I am your host, Michael Utterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. Hi, Alan. How are you? Good. Thank God, Mike. How are you? All right. Uh, still under house restriction. However, we have a very important remote guest, even though we're doing this all on Zoom. Javiv uh, Retegur has agreed to graciously join us. Hi, Javiv. Hello. Thank you for having me. Wow. We really appreciate it, especially in the middle of a tense political moment. We feel uh, we're very appreciative that you're, you're taking the time to talk to us. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Like, how do, do do we say what we're up to now? Do we try to go over the past crazy week in Israeli politics? That's going to be our topic. Not the. Go ahead. Yeah, I think we should do a little bit of an overview of how we got to where we are, and then get into the craziness of today, of the last hour. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy hour. We're recording well, this, this Thursday, around, Thursday evening around four, a little around four thirty. Uh, who wants to do the summary of what we're up to and how we got here? Alan or Javiv? Alan is the teacher, Javiv is the political leader. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know. A yeah. uh, summary of how we got here. So um, if, you, if you remember that Israel is still in its uh, coalition stage of the election, meaning, again, after the election, there's a time period where the, uh, the party that is most likely seems to be able to form the government, gets the chance to do that. Um, that was given by the president to Benny Gantz, the head of the Blue and White Party, Kholavan, um, because they got he was able to get 62 um, uh, Knesset members to back him to head into those coalition agreements. Okay? Um, and so we're in that time period. During this the time period... The first crack to form the coalition, Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz. Now, in all of this came a brouhaha, over the um, the chair of the Knesset, which has been held as it was from the previous Knesset, the previous the previous Knesset, which is a Likud, one of the uh, main players in Likud, Yuli Edelstein, is the chair of the Knesset or speaker. What is of the that Knesset, job? Sorry, speaker, speaker of the what Knesset. What is the speaker's job? He he sets up or she sets up the agenda of the parliament. Basically, they get to decide what the parliament talks about, and it's pretty, you know. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's, and he's generally seen as someone who's done a good job at it. He's been holding that position, I think, seven years or so, uh, something like that. And um, as we've, you know, the Likud the, the has been in, in power. And this week, um, and one of the, it, as we've spoke, I think, on another previous uh, podcast, one of the important things that he gets all to determine what committees get voted on, how the committee, well, when the committees get sent up. One of the important committees is a committee is whether they'll be able to pass um, a law that prevents a indicted uh, indicted minister, uh, sorry, indicted Knesset member from becoming prime minister, which is a clearly a uh, a power struggle against the sitting prime minister Bibi Netanyahu, who has been indicted and is supposed to go on trial, which has been delayed because of the coronavirus uh, um, emergency. Anyway, so. <laughs> if I'm hopefully being clear, the, so. the Gantz, blue, was given, Gantz was given the position to hold the coalition. Right. Yuli Edelstein the, is the speaker. And from the Likud. A, and, from the Likud, and there's a crisis because? Because what the, the blue and white and the other parties decided to do was basically um, replace Yuli Edelstein with a uh, speaker from their own, from their own party. 
um, from their own side, which would then would give them control over the agenda of the parliament and these committees and the ability to pass all kinds of laws, even before the government is formed. Um, and, and this is a procedural gray area? This is a procedural gray area. It's usually pro forma that the Speaker of the House, um, it, it was historically something that went to, in the interim period, went to the senior member of the Knesset, not even someone from the sitting party or the last one. That was changed a couple of years ago, again, for stability, but again, not for like procedural reasons, not for really main politics reason. And But Yuli Edelstein decided uh, that um, the best for the country at this point in stability uh, was to not um, allow a vote on replacing him. I guess that's a basic way to say it, right? Right. Um, and he refused to. And so then the the blue and white uh, turned to the Supreme Court to rule on it, who ruled that he had to call the vote. He said the Supreme Court doesn't have authority and refused the Supreme Court and decided to resign instead. And that gets us to today, yeah? Did I, did I do it? <laughs> right up until blue and white breaking apart. And then we get to today, uh, blue and white, um, uh, that through negotiations, but I think we'll get more into this with Khaviv also, through negotiations of, of politicking, trying to form the government, blue and white, um, has the head of blue and white, Benny Gantz, has decided to run to be the Speaker of the House himself and to uh, discuss at, with potential um, keeping the uh, the unity government talks going, which has been happening, and uh, potentially also breaking up blue and white party because some of his partners don't want that to happen. A unity government, such as Yair Lapid. I think that was that was thorough and clear. <laughs> okay, good. Thank God. No, it's, it's a very confusing time. I, I, yeah. So now that Alan's get, given us the headlines, Khaviv, can you please explain to us what the heck is happening? Sure. Um, here's what, what it looks like it's happening right now. And then, um, and then just to sort of frame it, I'll, I'll tell you what I suspect or what I think Netanyahu might be thinking at the moment. Um, Benny Gantz is going to be the Speaker of the Knesset, uh, or at least the interim Speaker of the Knesset, um, taking the position away from um, Likud, from um, and from and from Yair Lapid, from Blue and White, who were uh, Blue and White as a as a unified coalition, uh, wanted to appoint Mayor Cohen of Yeshati. Benny Gantz can't let Yeshati take control of the Speaker's position because then uh, Yeshati will control the Knesset and not the broader Blue and White coalition. And then if he breaks away from blue and white, um, um, then he won't have the Knesset and he won't be able to pass votes in the Knesset and any government he might lead in the future or immediately uh, will be unstable. So Benny Gantz, because Yair Lapid was pushing Mayor Cohen of his own Yeshatik party to the speaker's position uh, for a vote today, um, essentially Benny Gantz was forced into a decision that he has not been forced into until now. And that decision was you have to decide whether you're going with Netanyahu in a unity government, or you have to decide whether you're going with Lapid, who will not allow us um, uh, any coalition with Netanyahu and is willing to see this through the end. Benny Gantz decided we're we're bringing this um, we're bringing this to the end. We're finishing um, this whole long, uh, complicated 
endless, painful, you know, agonizing process. Uh, and we are delivering a government because of the virus uh, crisis and everything. And he did it by choosing Netanyahu. Now, it looks like, it, it looks like, it makes sense to choose Netanyahu. Netanyahu brings with him 58-seat coalition. Uh, Netanyahu gives him a much, much larger uh, uh, base. And he can, because Netanyahu is so desperate, now that he's losing the speakership position, uh, he doesn't want to be prime minister without holding the speaker. Um, and he can't imagine calling a fourth election in the middle of the virus crisis. Um, Netanyahu is going to give him unity uh, government deal, which is to say the same number of ministers. Um, you know, Gantz is coming with, with 15 members of Knesset from his party, Chosen Israel, or Israel Resilience. And he'll have as many ministers as Likud, uh, which has 36 members of Knesset. So um, most of the members of Knesset from Gantz's Chosen Israel party um, will be ministers. Um, so Gantz gets a lot, allows the government to be formed, and gives up the dream of the center and center-left and Arabs and Lieberman and all this strange coalition to, to topple Netanyahu and get rid of him. And just to explain how strange this moment is, I want to suggest a conspiracy theory that I can't prove. Netanyahu is a little bit evil. Uh, he's, um, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant tactician, and, uh, and brilliant people sometimes are evil just because it's, it's enjoyable. Netanyahu could do the following. Blue and white just broke up. Even if they haven't technically broken up, none of them will ever trust the other again. They have held their ground. They have stuck together for this entire year-long, endless, awful three-election process. And now... No daylight between no them. No daylight of any kind. Even paths. when they were fighting and debating and arguing and angry at each other, they clung together perfectly, completely, and comprehensively and in every way. Uh, and they never will again. They'll never trust that one of them won't be looking aside to try and jump ship. Now Netanyahu doesn't go with guns. Now, over the next three hours, Netanyahu goes to Lieberman and says, it's over. Blue and white's gone. You got, you've got no... You can't have a unity you government. Can, you, you, the option of not me is gone. Now, why don't you be a defense minister? And then, he go, and then, he, and then Gantz is left with nothing. Um, and we're back where we were when this whole thing started, when Lieberman was right. in the coalition and all of the now, three elections were just right. now from years, getting us back from to From years and years of following Netanyahu, I am 110% sure that he, that thought went through his mind. <laughs> I'm sure. There's no way it didn't. It went through my mind, so there's no way it didn't go through his. And I'm sure it made him cackle. Right, but you are evil, Javier. That's not fair. <laughs> Listen, there's only so much you can study a thing before you start to uh, resemble it. Um, but, um, but I think that the point of, of, of laying out that, that kind of a strange odd, you know, scenario is, um, how strange this moment is. It just shows that Gantz has, he thinks he has Netanyahu, you know, um, um, you know, desperate to, to, uh, uh, desperate for him. At the Big same deals. time, he's just made himself tremendously vulnerable. The only thing that made him powerful was the unity of blue and white. Um, well, that, except that now he, he does have the Speaker of the House. He is, does control the Parliament, which could control votes on Netanyahu's ability to only once he's voted form in form a government. He's not voted right? in yet. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying once he's voted in. Also, you know, you topple the Speaker with right? with ninety with ninety votes. Can Netanyahu put together right. ninety votes without Gantz? Um, but in these hours, Gantz is desperately vulnerable, and I don't know that Gantz understands it. He's not quite as. Can I make a counter pitch? Yeah. 
to your to your evil conspiracy theory can i do like the you know, that's the devil on one side i'd be the angel on the other side making the angelic conspiracy theory that's less fun but, but sure much less fun but it could be that all sides are seriously saying this is a time of real crisis and the instability and the lack of cooperation that we've displayed in front of the israeli people at a at a time when people are locked in their homes and feeling unnerved Maybe it's time to just come up with a solution for stability and let's put the politics aside. And if that means I'm vulnerable, I'm vulnerable. But we're not going to take advantage right now of each other's vulnerabilities. We're going to put our politics aside and we're going to work together to make something that will keep, you know, not to switch horses in midstreams that keeps a level of stability, but still allows the new players in, in a productive way after all these elections. We're not resetting to ground zero. We're not getting any, everything we want. We're creating something stable that'll allow us to continue. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. Uh, they've managed to go an awful long way down this rabbit hole without it. They managed to shut down the Knesset for two weeks while the, no state budget and no social workers and nothing was moving properly. And the whole Corona crisis was exploding yeah. around us and no committees were watching the government's emergency powers. The government has now been, tracking us all for, for, for a couple of weeks now. And there's been no subcommittee. What does that mean? What does that mean the government's tracking The Shin Bet has been, uh, was ordered by the government last week to start tracking all of our movements, everyone in Israel. Uh, and it has this uh, specific technology that can track cell phones very, very carefully and closely and with very complex databases. Uh, it built out this massive cyber division over the last decade. And, and it's used under close supervision of the Knesset Subcommittee for Clandestine Services and some other agencies, and the Prime Minister's Office Ombudsman and other agencies. Um, and it's used for counterterrorism. It's used to track um, if there's any theory that there's some terrorists walking around somewhere, then it's used to zoom in on them. And, and, and it's one of the reasons that uh, Israel has been able to just locate whatever terrorists they need to assassinate somewhere in Iraq. Uh, so they have these cyber abilities. Um, and that, they're treating us essentially like cyborgs, uh, treating our phones as part of us, and they track us by where our phones are. They track are. us by where our phones are, but they also have uh, uh, data that uh, tells them who people we are usually with are and where they are. So in case we leave our phone at home, right. they can still take a pretty good guess of where we are. That is, The government has ordered the Shimba to apply that to all of Israel's citizens in order to track who has been near people who have uh, the virus and in order to enable the health, the health ministry requested this. These are emergency powers. The government right now has the right to legislate without the Knesset. Unbelievably, uh, you know, unheard of, unprecedented things are happening in Israel. The economy is tanking. 500,000 people lost their jobs. Families are not being able, are not able to pay for their groceries. And Yuli Edelstein was preventing the Knesset from forming the basic, the committee, to, the finance committee to set up a new budget to take care of some of these people. And the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, which has to form the subcommittee to oversee you know, that tracking system. And he's been just freezing everything in place for the last, uh, whatever it was, nine days. Um, now, suddenly... The health crisis, economic crisis, uh, uh, civil, expanding role of government civil rights, into our civil an rights. An emergency government civil crisis. rights crisis. And, and none of it has driven them to do so yet. I w let me concede that it's possible that Benny Gantz who I think is that decent person and thinks of himself as a, you know, whatever, however you translate the word mamlachti, um, um, believing in the dignity of, of officialdom and, you know, state agency authority and, and institutionalism. institutionalism. 
Um, establishment. I think, establishment. I think is. Benny Gantz is a believer in institutions and is a believer in self-limiting and in dignity and in politeness and in all of those things as fundamental to politics. And I, I, I think some of this might be, frankly, that he has concluded, he thinks Benjamin Netanyahu is awful. Benjamin Netanyahu would sell his mother you know, for, for his seat. I think he started to conclude that Yair Lapid is the same. Because a lot of what has driven um, this freeze has been that Yair Lapid insists on legislating Benjamin Netanyahu out of power. Legislating constitutional amendments to push Benjamin Netanyahu out of power, which is something that, Yeshatita, that uh, Yair Lapid and Blue and White promised in the campaign, they're going to pass laws that an indicted member of Knesset can't be prime minister. It's not a crazy idea. Uh, an indicted member of Knesset can't be a cabinet minister right now. But it's a constitutional change, and there's a long-standing tradition in Israel that you change electoral law and you change the constitutional sort of framework of how we run our politics with a delay. You don't change it for today. You change it for two elections down the road so that you're not passing major changes to the electoral system just to get that one guy out of power. Blue and white has decided that's what it's going to do, and I think that kind of, uh, that kind of you know, no-holds-barred, you know, take-no-prisoners aggressive changing the norm changing of the norms exactly is is something that guns now sees in lapid and in bb and if both of them are these types might as well form a unity government uh and it, can i ask you a side question in parentheses why is it that a minister of knesset under indictment can't serve but a prime minister can why is the law that way like why is that a loophole that that needs that needs to be closed why wasn't why, if he, the prime minister is a minister? Um, the answer is um, uh, just, um, there's a simple answer and there's a, a sort of a big constitutional answer. The simple answer is in the 1990s, there were two ministers uh, from Shas, uh, Pinchasi and um, uh, I think Pinchasi was Dari. a deputy minister and, and was it Arya Derry himself? Um, so there was a Supreme yeah. Court, there was a Supreme Court uh, decision on them, a High Court of Justice decision on them that said that if they're indicted, there is a problem with them serving. You think it wasn't there? What? I, I, Alan thinks that maybe it wasn't there. I, I, I'm not I sure. Mean, he certainly ended up in jail. It was two people yeah. from Shas, and it was it was in parallel yeah, yeah. with Derry's corruption trial. It, it might have been yeah. Derry himself. I, I don't remember exactly, but um, but it, it, it was, it's called the Pinchas, yeah. It's called the Pinchasi decision. So everybody knows Pinchasi was involved. Um, right. But um, the Supreme Court said that a, a, a cabinet, an indicted person, should not be cabinet minister, especially when you get to places like uh, the Justice Ministry, where it's the minister overseeing the investigators of himself. Um, and that has been a standard set by the court without any law um, since then. In other words, it's just become sort of common law, so to speak. Um, uh, Hanegbi, uh, Victor Lieberman, um, Arya Derry himself. Um, uh, again and again, we've seen indicted ministers step down. Now, a minister is not a significant position in Israeli law, uh, but a prime minister is a very significant protected position. You have to get a prime minister into his office. You need a Knesset majority. Uh, a prime minister has the power, has, has tremendous powers, and, um, and they're very, very careful not to allow a prime minister. You know, the law itself is very careful to protect a prime minister and also to make it very difficult to become prime minister so that a prime minister really reflects, you know, the popular will. Uh, and so there are more protections to the prime minister against other branches of government, including the judiciary, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So under explicit law, under the actual law, basic law of the government, which is the closest we have to a constitutional 
statement about how this works. Uh, the prime minister has to have been convicted in the final appeal in order to have to mm. step down. Uh, just so that a judiciary can't, one, you know, prosecuting attorney from some uh, district office can't mm-hmm. file an indictment and knock the prime minister out of office, which which can happen in theory, at least for a cabinet minister. Uh, so that's why a prime minister is not required to step down. Uh, and they would change that. Now, that's a fundamental constitutional change, which is fine, which is great. Not having an indicted person as prime minister is arguably a good idea. Um, but... But it does come with risks also. It, it comes with risks because because you can get indicted and, you know, not all trials end in convictions. And that should remove a very popular and very capable prime minister from power because why, right? Well, you need to protect the prime minister from other branches of government and from people willing to play other branches of government. Every prosecutor in this country who can file an indictment should not have the power to bring down a prime minister. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that everyone agrees with. Well, what would this constitutional change mean? Would it change that? The idea that it's happening now just for Netanyahu uh, makes it, I think, less less legitimate, not just unwise, but, but illegitimate. You want to pass it? Pass it. Have it applied to the next prime minister. You don't have it applied to this one. Every change we've seen in Israeli electoral law, the raising of the electoral threshold from you know, 1% to 2% to 2.5% to 3 and a quarter, all of these changes to Israeli law, uh, campaign finance changes, it used to be that you would fundraise for your primary campaigns in parties that had primaries. You no longer are allowed to fundraise. All primary campaign financing is government campaign financing. When the Knesset passed that rule, it didn't pass it for that group of members of Knesset. It passed it for the, for the following cycle, right? It makes, it makes these improvements not useful for political gain. For it political makes it, 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 now you know that it's really to fix the system and not for a short-term exactly. political gain. And here and it's, it's, ex- not, it's not targeting. Targeting your opponent, yeah. right. exactly. And here it's yeah. explicitly to target your opponent. We've never seen an electoral law change uh, right. like that. So, so that, that's on the, on the sort of anti-BB side of trying to change the norms which you wrote about in your recent article about how now like norms, long-standing norms are clearly changing. So as we mentioned that a lot of the spark this week in the discussion until about an hour ago was the Yuli Edelstein speaker of the house. How, so how's that also trying to change a norm? Um, the speaker of the house and the, the fight between uh, Yuli Edelstein and the Supreme court and what's going on there from the, you could say the right hand side. Pro BB camp, right? I, I, uh, I, I sub- uh, my position is a pox on both their houses. We are seeing an assault, not on democracy. Um, Israeli democracy is this very complicated thing that people use the word without exactly defining uh, or deciding what it means. Um, but I think we are seeing an assault on the old norms. We are seeing that the partisanship is so deep. The hatred of Netanyahu is so profound. And Netanyahu has instigated and sparked and created and knowingly and intentionally run a massively anti-Arab campaign uh, that included SMSs and uh, that are blatantly racist. Uh, I could show you. He himself won't say blatantly racist things, but his party funded an SMS campaign that was um, and putting cameras and polling stations. And just Netanyahu has tried to create um, incredible partisan anger and rancor and rage. Uh, and we've seen it on, on we've seen it happen on, on on all sides, and that has sort of left in the dust all of these rules. So so Edelstein, uh, you know, 
as an example, you, what you mentioned about the interim speaker, it's really important to grasp that when Edelstein froze uh, the Knesset in the sense that he would not let the plenum meet and vote on replacing him, which the plenum wanted to do, but also on uh, forming committees that could pass budgets and help the people affected by the virus help and with the crisis. help with the crisis and oversee the emergency powers of the government, which are unprecedented. When he did that, he was claiming that the interim speaker of the Knesset has, um, has the powers of a permanent speaker. Now, the interim speaker is a very, very technical position, and it's a position that uh, only exists for a very short period of time. Most Knesset, it's for a couple of days, sometimes a few hours. Um, the, the longest that one has ever served uh, until Epstein now um, was, I think, 30 days. And, and the, the goal of a speaker, of a interim speaker, is that you have a, a swearing in. There's an election. Within a few days of the election, usually just a couple of days, uh, the new Knesset is sworn in. And then someone just literally has to sit at the podium for the first meeting or the, sec or the first five meetings, just while we set up the, the, the arrangements committee and just start assigning you know, jobs and, and figure out what happens. And that is the interim speaker. Now, tradition and universal agreement, and it has never not been true, even though it's not written in any law, that the interim speaker does nothing. No interim speaker has ever done anything. So much so that in, uh, un until 2016, from 1949, with the election of the first Knesset, until 2016, four years ago, uh, the interim speaker wasn't even elected. It was, it was, a, uh, it was the, the longest serving member of Knesset, automatically became interim speaker, regardless of the party. It didn't matter if he was from some three-member tiny little party uh, because uh, the interim speaker had no powers. Now, but it's essentially symbolic for the moment, so it doesn't really matter. It's a technical. They're not going to do anything. Anyway. Yeah, it's a technical, technical placeholder. Now, that technical placeholder is what Yuli Edelstein has been since May of 2019, because he ha there hasn't been an election for a permanent speaker, and even then, he was just elected speaker. Had he had, he had been right interim uh, from the April election. Um, um, yeah. So for the very first time in Israel's history, we've had an interim speaker for 10 months, and Yuli Edelstein decided that he has the power to set the agenda just like a permanent speaker does. Now, nowhere in law does it say he doesn't have that power. Nowhere in law does it say he does, but his title is speaker, and the speaker does have the power to set the agenda. So he decided he has the power to set the agenda, um, and that broke all the rules. It just broke all parliamentary rules. And he did so in the middle of this emergency. And he did so, um, you know, in a way, and he didn't even explain it to anyone. He just decided no one can meet. And Blue and White ha has, an, has a majority, has an agenda. Um, and so the legal argument against it was this has always been um, a position that exists until there's a majority to elect a new speaker and a new Knesset. Now, you are literally not letting that majority meet. Do you even have that right? And the Supreme Court said that he, he, the High Court of Justice, which is the same judges but a different institution, um, said you, you don't have the right, once a majority forms in the Knesset, to prevent it. Yuli Edelstein says, look, I'm breaking tradition, but that's the law. The, the Knesset Takanun, the Knesset statute, which is all the bylaws that run the Knesset that decide how it functions, says that I am the speaker and I can set the plenum agenda. Now, 
if that's the law, that's the law. You don't like it. You don't like me. That's your problem. But it's still the law. What right does the court even have to intervene? So there are two very um, interesting and important, and I think, I, think, I hate to say it, but I think both sides are convincing, even in their legal argument. Um, mm -hmm. Once you have a majority that says, I don't want this guy, and he says, well, tough luck. Knesset speakers can, can stand down majorities in the Knesset. They're meant to. But there's at least supposed to be elected speakers, not, not holdover placeholders. Right. Um, so that so he broke with tradition. He said, I'm breaking with tradition to prevent blue and white from breaking with tradition and passing laws, constitutional amendments that will prevent their political opponents from coming to power. The Supreme Court said, yeah, but that's you serving the executive. You have to defend the legislative. So you're breaking your, your I don't know what, the fabric of democracy by not serving. That was the court's term. You're, you're um, undermining the fabric of democracy by not standing up for the Knesset's rights. Um, Edelstein said the court had issued an illegal order because what do you mean? It's in the Knesset rules. You can't tell me that I can't function as a politician within the rules of the Knesset because you don't like how it turned out. Uh, you left-wing, you know, citizen pretending to be a Supreme Court judge right now, but issuing an order that has no legal basis. Um, so that's been the crisis. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's, we are in unprecedented territory. You can make either argument with a straight face, they both have a, a side. But it seems to me, even the president said, the bottom line is, in a, in a crisis like this, you, you can't defy the Supreme Court and right. have the structure. Well, that's where you have opinion. people like Ayala Chakin. The president, you know, uh, believes deeply in, in the baguettes and in this, in this Supreme Court. Uh, Ayala Chakin, doesn't like the Supreme Court, doesn't like its decisions, doesn't like the positions and opinions, legal opinions and political opinions of the judges. I've noticed that actually. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, it, come across a little she's bit. She's subtle. Her, she's subtle, but you can oh, yeah, sift it out. It's hard of, to read. Just yeah. for, let's uh, remind listeners, Ayala Chakid is uh, the, from the Yamina Party, the right, whatever it's called, the right-wing party, and she was the justice minister um, in the coalition with Likud for many years. She's a lawyer and was a justice minister. Yeah. So she doesn't like, but she also, she also she ran in one of the elections with the new right. The slogan, she ran with Naftali Bennett and it was Bennett will defeat Hamas and Shaked will defeat the Supreme yes, Court. Yes, Shaked really doesn't like the Supreme Court. Shaked yeah. said today or yesterday, I can't believe before Edelstein said, I'm resigning and I'm, I'm defying the court. I can't believe he'll defy the court. But wow, is the court, you know, terrible and wrong and, and, right, right. and we should appoint conservative judges so that this doesn't happen. So the other herself is shocked at Edelstein defying the court. You, you know, and I interviewed um, for an article in the Times of Israel, Professor Yuval Shani, who is a uh, law professor at Hebrew University and the vice president of the Israel Democracy Institute, and very, very much on the left-wing side of this debate, uh, and one of the main advocates of the left-wing side of this debate that the court needs to intervene here. Uh, and he said, oh, look, Edelstein has an argument. The Knesset Takanon, the Knesset mm -hmm. Statute, does... It's not that he gives him this power. It doesn't explicitly say he doesn't have this power. It doesn't not give, it him, doesn't that not give him that power. And his title is speaker. And these are the powers of the speaker, even if it's never been how we understood what those words mean. He's re-understanding the words, but he's still within the, the words of the law itself. You can argue that. And you know what? Maybe history will side with him. And maybe history will say Edelstein was right. You still obey a court. The courts are wrong sometimes. The courts are human institutions. You don't right. not obey the court. That's the beginning of a whole nother kind of breakdown beyond anything political and anything else. 
You don't like the court rules. We can complain about the umpire tomorrow, but for today, for the game to continue, we follow the rule of the umpire. Right. And in this and situation, the Supreme Court. And that's why Edelstein said, you know, my conscience won't let me. I, that's why he resigned while doing so. Yeah. That's now he resigned while doing so. He was about to be voted out, right? Um, so yeah. No, but it, I'm not going to block that vote anymore because I rec. I because I don't recognize the Supreme Court's ability to tell me to. To, to stop that vote, I'm leaving. It's it's a more honorable thing to do than to just keep blocking. It's a more honorable vote. sounding thing to do. In his resignation, he ended up shutting the Knesset for five more days and delaying further. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. And, and which the which the Supreme Court also overthrew. Overthrew. I think it's like. Yeah. But he forced the Supreme Court also to go into that yeah. that other rabbit hole. What what right does the Supreme Court have to overthrow that? What right does the Supreme Court have to set exactly. the agenda? That's a, that's his whole point. I think he was trying to flush out the point. I mean, Yuli Edelstein, whether we agree with this move or not, it generally is seen as a, a more of an, uh, an honest ideologue, right? For both sides, right? You'd see him as a guy who, he was a prisoner of, of Zion and Soviet, you know, Soviet Union. We kind of all grew up <laughs> knowing his name, right? Of one of those outstanding heroes, like, you know, like Natan Sharansky. Um, but uh, and did this move, and which he even invoked his you know, years in the gulag as as being his precedent. He really uh, to you know judge him the benefit of the doubt, whether you know how, how much politics and all that is that he really believed that the Supreme Court had no justification for intervening in parliamentary politics, right, or parliamentary affairs. Correct. Right, and, and you know, and I don't know, if, I don't know. If and they even went this. further. Even they went even further and said, okay. So, you know, they could t- totally overtook the parliament by by saying, you know, okay, he can't stop it from uh, even with his resignation. Right. Um, he he acknowledged the court, told the court it, its order was illegal, resigned, and also stuck a, a you know a stick in the in the works um, while resi- he did all the things all at once. Um, but he he is, I think, an honest man. In other words, I do think he believes. That he's doing the right thing. Um, it, it's worth saying he, the court gave. Well, I, I don't know if we mentioned the court gave him two orders, right? And and he obeyed one, and he defied the other. He obeyed the opening of the committees um, to have oversight over the emergency powers of the government, um, and 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 that 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 I think shows his his obviously he was playing politics and he was maneuvering politically to his right. advantage. Also, when the court said, listen, the general legislature has to have oversight over an emergency government passing emergency ordinances, right. he said, okay, well, arguably the judiciary should be able to order the legislature to have oversight of an emergency government. Right. So he, he didn't completely defy the court. The court gave two orders. He obeyed one, and committees were founded immediately. By the way, Blue and White broke every tradition by chairing all the committees. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That has never happened um, in Israel's history. The opposition always gets, the minority always gets. Some of the committees, usually the committees that have to do with oversight and critique of the government, uh, and uh, Blue and White founded six committees and gave six committees to its to its side. Um, and Likud said, look, they're being undemocratic, and Likud's right in the same sense that, Edels, that, that Blue and White's right, that Yuli Edelstein frees in parliament uh, was undemocratic. So he obeyed the one, and then when he thought that Supreme Court really didn't have a leg to stand on, then he defied them. So let me ask you your so I think, your opinion. Sorry, can I ask? Yeah, go ahead. What do you think? We're just we're running low on uh, time. So. What do you think, Khabib? Is the system broken? 
every democracy uh, runs on informal rules. There's only so much you can expect and predict and uh, put down in writing. Um, and uh, our democracy more than most because we have very little in writing. Um, and they're no longer obeying those rules. Nobody, they're not giving minority uh, the, the, norms. The, the norms. They're not giving the parliamentary minority uh, committee chairmanships. They're not, um, the interim speaker is suddenly the speaker, even though nobody elected him. Um, they're, you know, they're passing major electoral changes targeting ex specifically their political opponent and doing it, in, in, you know, retroactively, essentially, uh, for this election cycle. Um, you know, and they're all doing it. They're all doing it. The very fact that you go to a May 30, 2019, when Benjamin Netanyahu couldn't form a government and instead of giving it to his opponent, decided to call a new election was, was unprecedented. There'd never been an election in Israel that hadn't ended up forming a government. Um, and that was a breaking of the rules that he would just call a new election instead of, instead of okay, you, you couldn't do it, you lost. Now, now let the other guy sit in the opposition for six months, then bring him down, you know? But breaking that, breaking a norm in a, in, a situ in a system like this, it's a little bit like pulling, like, oh, it's only one string in my sweater. Once you break this norm, you're really pulling the whole, the whole fabric of how it works together. It gets pulled further and further. And so you end up in more and more situations where the norms don't exactly apply and so we're charting new courses all the time. We are. And that has the danger of spinning out of control. It is spinning out of control. Imagine United States politics without minority and majority, without any kind of discipline, without whips, without rules, without the coordination between the Senate and the House. All of those things are informal. All of those things are unwritten. There wouldn't be a budget. Yeah. There, there would be nothing. Well, there certainly wouldn't be oversight of, listen, you know, all you know, America believes in preventing its government from successfully working. It's, it's an ideology, but... <laughs> and damn, but a lot of those things have happened, like forming budgets and a lot of those norms are breaking. Uh, maybe, maybe this is, you know, beyond Israel. Uh, yes, but in Israel, it's happening fast and it's happening now. And uh, this year-long stalemate has really driven it uh, forward in a very powerful way. I, I think that's very dangerous. We're still a democracy. We're going to remain a democracy. We're going to be very dysfunctional until the norms come back until people recommit to them and realize the danger of, of, of them. You would have thought that a crisis would have helped people realize that right away. Well, an hour ago, time uh, we saw Gantz make a, a startling move. That, that might be the, the crisis asserting itself and the norms coming back. Gantz is a decent person. Everyone who's ever known him agrees, including Benjamin Netanyahu. Even though he's run a campaign arguing he's mentally ill, Benjamin Netanyahu is the last person who thinks that. He praised Gantz, appointed him chief of staff of the army, and then extended his term as chief of staff of the army and until he became his political opponent, thought he was not mentally ill. Um, uh, maybe Benny Gantz really is uh, reasserting the rules and therefore doing something that's uh, will help us reestablish the norms. You know, I'll, can I'll give I'll give a positive spin on it. Potential again, who knows? But maybe the thing that will come out of this is we'll finally get a constitution. They'll, they'll wake up and say, "Hey, wait, we really got to write these th some of these things down. We really got to uh, put together a." Uh, uh, a constitution of how we're going to work these things out in the future. Yeah, or or a little bit more of a constitution, e yeah. even very yeah. very sophisticated, even very very sophisticated constitutions like the United States and France uh, can be no. very, can be destabilized when the norms you know evaporate. Yeah, obviously, right. you always have to have norms. You always have to have norms right. that are not written. You can't. You said it nicely before. You can't write everything. But right. the fact that we don't have any real developed constitution. 
just makes it that more uh, up in the air. Right. I would argue that the, that the, the temptation to break the norms seems to come from this sense that my opponent, political opponents, are a danger. And so defeating them is more important than maintaining the norms. That one of the mm -hmm. most important elements in a, in a democratic system is the ability to lose gracefully, graciously, mm -hmm. gracefully, hand it over and say, okay, I'll get you next time and we'll, we'll fix whatever you do that I think is wrong. We'll have to fix it. But the system has to come first. Right. And that's, I think, that, 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 that it's that partisan angst that I can't afford, you know, they it's, all it's, say that now. it's bacon saying not well, uh, they have to put their, no, they're all, I mean, I think, God, no, they're all saying the, the bad thing you said, they're all saying the other side yeah. is destroying the country. Right. Yeah. Right. You and know, they ran campaigns saying, I won't shoot back. I won't shoot back right. at, at what they're shooting at, at when the Palmach is shooting at the Etzel, we won't shoot back. We'll, we'll be defeated rather than break the people apart. That's a courage that's, uh, that, that we don't have in the so moment. At the moment. lacking for the last year. So can we, can, do you, can I get you to express any optimism that, that maybe there's a light at the end? I am the, the most optimistic of all, certainly in journalism, of all the observers of this situation in the sense that I think a lot less is at stake than people who mm -hmm. talk about the downfall of democracy. Um, what is at stake is momentary. What is at stake is the culture of politics. What is at stake is the capacity of government to function properly. Democracy in Israel never came from the top, never came from the institutions, never came from a constitution. It always came from the bottom up. And that is, is absolutely, you know, the Israeli people are, are incredibly uh, disciplined and obeying all of this emergency stuff. The second the emergency stuff isn't very clearly because of the emergency, the whole thing will collapse on them. Right. I mean, and I have no question of the day I doubt that that's the day for the very first time right. I joined the New Israel Fund and worrying about Israeli democracy. Um, right. But so in that sense, I'm the most optimistic. But uh, but there'll be there's a lot that har of harm that can be done, a lot of harm that can be done to a country, not to its democracy, but to everything else. Uh, to its economy, to its society, to its sense of self, uh, by this breakdown of, of those norms. And uh, so in that sense, no, I'm not optimistic. Uh, we're going to be okay, but it's going to be a bad time until we reclaim, you know, those basic norms of decency that we used to, uh, that, that used to run this place. Yeah. Well, as, as Alan pointed out last week, you know, after the Black Death came the Renaissance. Like sometimes we have to go through these traumas to build better systems afterwards. And so... That may be, hopefully that's what we're going through. Just as with the coronavirus, maybe the world will learn to be more aware of its interconnectedness and build better systems of, of taking care of each other. So maybe this political crisis here in Israel will lead to the establishment of more stable norms and values. From your mouth, Alan, to, uh, to God's ear. Inshallah. Amen. Inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> All right. Well, Chaviv, thank you very much. Under difficult circumstances at the last minute in the middle of a breaking news story. I can't, I mean, I, I speak for not just me and Alan, but for everybody when I say how much we appreciate uh, you taking the time. And, and that was so helpful. And I'll tell you, in a, I thank you in advance for our listeners, uh, how helpful that really was. I always so appreciate your articles on it because it's where I get a lot of my uh, inspiration. So, so go out and read his thank articles. You. Thank you so much. I mean, much, obviously, man. I'll put the link in the podcast, yeah. but listeners always, always read Chaviv, partially because it, uh, 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 the clarity, but also that the the honesty, but the optimism also, that the faith 
in how things go on. That's a rare voice, unfortunately, uh, well worth reading. I appreciate it. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Everyone stay healthy. Thank you, Javid. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Macomb Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. Don't forget to share, subscribe, rate, and review. Join us next time.